Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Randy Ash, pastor of First Baptist Church in Bayfield. We'd love to have you visit sometime. Our worship service is at 1030 on Sunday mornings. I hope you enjoyed last week's first part of our interview with Dr. Craig Blomberg, and I'm glad you're tuned in this week for the second part. If you missed it last week, go to godsolutionshow.com and you can check out the first half of that interview. Dr. Blomberg is a New Testament scholar and distinguished professor of the New Testament at Denver Seminary right here in Colorado. He's authored more than 40 books. You can find those at Amazon.com. And we are so privileged to have him on the show with us this morning. We left off last week right in his answer about the inerrancy of Scripture. So we pick up again this morning with Dr. Blomberg discussing why we can believe in the inerrancy of God's Word, the Bible. The ancient world had a rather radical idea, and that was the only parts of the life of a person or a series of historical events worth recording were those that taught you profound lessons about life. What a radical notion. They would look at our drivel and our blog worlds today and say 95% of it is unnecessary and irrelevant. (laughs) They would look at the congressional record and they would say, why would you want to keep all of those speeches during a filibuster? (laughs) And so, yes, the most important thing, paradoxically, about Jesus' life was his death in the thought of early Christians, and that's what you're going to slow down and talk about. I could give more illustrations, but I think the point is clear. To say the Bible is without error is still, in my opinion, a very defensible statement. It's a very important statement theologically. If we believe it came from God, it's hard to imagine how we could ascribe error to God. But we have to understand it as also a completely human as well as a completely divine book, and that means recognizing that God inspired writers to write in the midst of their cultures, not divorced from them, not using a level of precision that people wouldn't be able to understand for another 30 centuries, but fitting in exactly to what was expected and understandable in their times and places. And if that's the criterion that we use, then the Bible is thoroughly accurate. How important is it to consider the narrative genres of Scripture as we study the books and passages of the Bible? Well, it's very important. None of us, I don't think, disputes that we would make uh, huge mistakes if we interpreted metaphors literally when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. I suppose one could obey that, but the last time I checked, even without the the gift of sight, one can still lust in one's mind, so I don't think that really would do the trick. <laughs> I don't think there would be any disagreement that when the Old Testament says the trees of the field will clap their hands, that we're to imagine ants, as in the Lord of the Rings, waving their branches together as they slowly tromp across the field. But it's interesting how those very basic and straightforward lessons get lost on a lot of people once you go beyond a single sentence or even a short story like a parable, which we don't expect necessarily to 
recount true experiences of people who actually lived. But when we get to a longer section of text that's also written in narrative form, somehow there is at least one segment of the Christian public that finds it more difficult to wrestle with questions of maybe this was intended to be some other literary genre other than completely sober, straightforward, factual account of things. And the point of the chapter that I wrote on this topic was not actually to suggest at any point that we have misinterpreted parts of the Bible traditionally that we have taken to be historical, merely to say that these are genuine issues that should be looked at, not as if you believe in inerrancy, you must take this a certain way, but questions for interpretation. There are people today who read Genesis 1 and 2, and they say it's got to be young earth, it's got to be six literal days of creation. There are others who affirm the inerrancy of Scripture every bit as seriously as anyone else, who say, no, the language of chapter 1 is so poetic, so filled with ancient Hebrew parallelism, that that's a tip-off to say God created everything that existed, but not necessarily in some literal six-day sequence no more than 6,000 years ago. And so we have Christians who believe in an old earth, who see God behind perhaps the Big Bang. And I don't mean the television show, but uh, the, uh, the scientific theory. And that's not an issue for people, although sometimes they do, sadly. But there's no reason that Christians should throw stones at each other and say, you can't hold that view and say you're an inerrantist. That's a, a matter for a debate about interpretation. What do we do when we come to Joshua 10 and the sun stands still? Is that poetic language like, in fact, we find in other ancient Near Eastern poetry of some kind of ominous portent in the heavens that scared the heck out of the pagan Philistines and enabled the uh, Israelites to continue to uh, rout them in battle? Do we have to believe that that is an account of literally the earth no longer spinning on its axis for one period of 60 minutes and somehow God working a miracle unlike ever described any place else in the Bible or in human history so that he interrupted the forces of gravity that otherwise would have sent everything spinning off of our planet into outer space. That's not a, an issue to say, well, if you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you have to take it this way and you can't take it a different way. What do we do when we come to the book of Daniel and very clearly Daniel, who appears to have been a 6th century B.C. individual, prophesies in such minute detail all of the events that we know transpired in later history right up to the time of the Maccabean Revolt in uh, 167 B.C. And then 
becomes immediately vague and jumps, as it were, to end times horrors that really can't be correlated with anything that's ever happened unless you do so so vaguely that you could find lots of correlations. Is that a tip-off that at least that part of Daniel in chapter 11 was written as late as the second century BC? Is that a kind of apocalyptic genre of which we actually have multiple other examples in the literature of Second Temple Judaism that wasn't set out to deceive anybody and wouldn't have deceived anybody as a way of saying, see how God has been sovereignly superintending events throughout these centuries. Trust him now in these dark and dire times that he will continue to do that. Not necessarily suggesting that that's what I think Daniel is. It's a tough one to figure out. But can we at least have the grace to allow the experts, the evangelical Christian scholars who spent a lifetime studying those kinds of things, to debate those kinds of questions without saying, no, if you believe in inerrancy, you've got to come down on side X in this debate. And again, I could give other examples, but probably rambled long enough. I appreciate your rambling, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I read Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament by Walton, and I yeah. sure didn't agree with everything in that book, namely the cosmic temple theory. But I felt like his treatment of Joshua 10 was absolutely phenomenal, and I'm excited that you mentioned it here. It was definitely exciting to read that. And I do agree with you that there needs to be grace, not stone throwing. I think of the back and forth going on right now between Ken Ham and Pat Robertson. And I want to tell these guys, you're first and foremost brothers in Christ. Let's love each other first. Let's have mm-hmm. these discussions in-house, but not portray to the world this animosity. So what about miracle stories in the Bible? Do these make it mythical and untrustworthy? I don't think so, no. To tie that conversation in with the last one, the first thing that a reader has to do is, as silly as this may sound, ask, is the biblical author definitely trying to record a genuinely supernatural event here? A fascinating example comes in Matthew 17 at the end of the chapter when Jesus and Peter are having a little discussion about paying taxes. And in a single verse, Matthew 17:27, Jesus says, Go to the lake and go fishing, and the first fish that you catch, open its mouth and you'll find a, a coin in it and use that to pay the tax for you and me. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Is that a miracle? Well, even before we ask that question, maybe we have to ask the question, does it ever say that anything actually happened? Does it ever say if Peter obeyed Jesus? Peter's track record of obedience, especially before Jesus' death and resurrection, is somewhat spotty. (laughs) And I don't know that we're necessarily meant to infer that Peter even went. Maybe he did. If he did, did he go fishing? Did he find the fish? Did he keep the coin, or did he use the coin to pay for the tax? There are a whole host of questions that the average reader doesn't stop to notice we're never even told the answers to. 
We can infer them. We can think we know. We can make assumptions, and those assumptions could be right. But we don't know that. So if somebody else comes along and says, okay, now, wait a minute, let's, on the grounds of literary genre, let's let's not call this a miracle. A, we don't know if it happened, and B, actually, there's nothing miraculous about catching a fish with a coin in its mouth. That's been done many times in the Sea of Galilee, ancient and modern. There's a fish known as a musht that loves to comb the floor of shallow parts of the lake and just take anything it finds into its mouth and manages somehow digestively to sift out what it needs. Certainly there would be a miraculous timing of events, but that's quite different than, say, Jesus walking on the water. That's the first step we have to ask. Is something genuinely miraculously being depicted? If our conviction is that it is, then I would refer to the work you alluded to earlier of Craig Keener, who's professor of New Testament at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky, and, and before that was at Palmer Seminary in the Philadelphia area, who has compiled in a, a two-volume work simply called Miracles that uh, Baker Academic Books published just a few years ago, literally hundreds of carefully researched and documented accounts of modern-day miracles on every continent on the planet, including North America. He had a very stringent list of criteria that an account had to pass before he would consider it, so he is selecting just the tip of the iceberg of the very best attested miracles from the modern world, vast majority of them involve the instantaneous healing of a person after public concerted Christian prayer that remained. It wasn't something where the person reverted back in a short period of time. And also exorcisms, but there are other kinds as well. There are Miracles involving forces of nature, similar to what we see in the New Testament in that realm. There are, of course, an entire body of literature that we know as near-death experiences of people who were pronounced dead in our modern, precise medical worlds and yet brought back to life and described visiting heaven under a variety of labels. So many that even if you doubt details of this one or that one, the evidence just becomes overwhelming that there is another dimension of life. There are things that scientists cannot explain. Sometimes Christians are accused of a god of the gaps. So whenever science can't explain something, then we punt and we say God did it. But Keener makes, I think, the very significant point that with the kind of research he has collected to say that modern science will one day be able to explain all of this really is uh, what you might call science of the gaps or a naturalism of the gaps. And it takes as much faith to say that there's absolutely no divine causation 
despite all the recurring features of these accounts. Maybe it takes more faith to say that than to say that there is a God along the lines of what Jews and Christians have traditionally believed who is behind these events. So again, I think far from this being an age of skepticism, as the Marxists like to think that religion would finally be done away with, there are more reasons to believe even in miracles. And then if I could add just a personal note, it becomes a discussion that's ratcheted up a notch even further when somebody like myself has had close friends and relatives who have had supernatural experiences, who have had chronic illnesses or injuries healed instantaneously, who have had what I've always dreamed of hearing, the actual voice of God, who've heard when no one else was around instruction that was not something they could have made up that predicted that certain things would happen that in turn did. And when you've had the experience of seeing and hearing about these things from people close enough to you that you know, you saw with your own eyes how ill they were for such a long time, and you saw how things were changed and changed for the rest of their lives, where there was no sign of that illness any longer, it becomes virtually undeniable. And for someone to say, well, uh, you poor deluded religious person using a crutch, science will explain that all someday, that just becomes enormously offensive and enormously improbable. My undergraduate degree was in chemistry, and if there's one thing I learned taking science, it was that there are limits and boundaries that science can't cross. Science can tell me a whole lot about the world today. It can't tell me about the existence or non-existence of God or a supernatural world. It might lead me towards belief in God. It's interesting when modern academia tries to push right. this anti-supernatural bias that Keener talks about, using science almost as their validation for that, which they just can't do. There's um, an organization that I've had a number of people point me to, don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, that has basically said, we will give a million dollars tax-free to anyone of any religious or irreligious perspective who can set up conditions in which they can predict the way scientists in a laboratory with experiments replicating past experience successfully predict that a miracle will occur. And no one has ever claimed the prize. No one has ever even come close to submitting a, a proposal or an account of something that would qualify for claiming the prize. And then these people trumpet proudly, see, see how religious faith is utterly groundless. Well, no. All you've done is said miracles cannot be predicted under scientific conditions. Everybody knew that already. If you could predict it, you wouldn't call it a miracle. <laughs> it's the most circular argument anybody's ever invented, and that bright people think it somehow adds up to something just boggles the mind. The whole idea in 
every religion, but especially in the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition of a miracle, is there being a God who can choose on rare occasions for his unique purposes not to work through the normal laws of cause and effect that otherwise he does work through that enabled the growth of modern science. It's amazing how much of modern science was built on explicitly Christian foundations, that there was a God who had created enough order in the universe that people could discover it and that humans created in his image were bright enough to be able to do so. It's really only been in the last couple hundred years that a majority of science uh, has not operated out of very explicitly Jewish and Christian foundations. And it's no coincidence that modern science didn't come out of the cyclical religions of the Eastern Asians, for example. But no, you're not going to be able to set up a laboratory process to predict it. That's assumed from the outset, and ultimately, it is a matter of faith. If God so made himself so clearly known that there would be no rational grounds for unbelief, then we would no longer be free creatures, and he would not have created the universe that he wanted to create, enabling people to freely enter into a love relationship with him. And I don't think any of the critics of the Christian worldview want, in their wildest dreams, that kind of a deterministic universe. Our audience can find more on this topic in our recent interview with Dr. Craig Keener at GodSolutionShow.com. Dr. Bomberg, I was in Denver this last weekend. I came up behind a car. It had one bumper sticker on it, and it simply said, Free Thinker. I was refreshed to see that the driver was obeying all the traffic laws. <laughs> uh, what would you say to the listener this morning who is open-minded but doubts the believability of the Bible? Is that before or after they've read my book? Um, <laughs> if it's before, I would hope that going into even greater detail than we've been able to on the show would give them some pause for thought, and I've tried in the end notes to refer people to uh, quite a bit of other literature, including more technical literature than would be appropriate for the general audience of the book. If they're open to further possibilities, I would just encourage them to keep digging, to keep reading from all perspectives and not just ones that they may have been following in the past, even as I try to do as a committed believer. If they have read my book already and aren't convinced, then it'd be fun to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I can readily be found on the Denver Seminary website at denverseminary.edu and would love to have some interaction with such a person. Thank you for being so approachable, too. It's just incredible that yes. you have that humble, approachable perspective. So anything else you'd like to say about this book? If the next blockbuster announcement on the internet about some apparent discovery calling into question some aspect of the Bible or seemingly confirming some aspect of the Bible, whatever that might be, and by definition we can't predict what it will be, if that causes someone who is already a Christian 
to suddenly doubt their faith, realize, A, the first two weeks after an Internet announcement, nobody knows what's really going on. <laughs> um, it's going to take at least months, if not a year or more, for the entire scholarly community to sift through the claims and make some determination. But secondly, realize there really is nothing new under the sun. The kinds of things that cause such a stir have happened before, have caused such stirs before, and nothing, nothing has yet emerged to even come close to putting into question traditional Christian belief and practice. Don't let your beliefs vacillate on the basis of the latest headline this week or next week. Realize that people have sifted through all of these issues very carefully. There are good answers to all of them. It may be astonishing in our digital world for somebody to hear me say this, but there are some places where there still are not the best answers available if you just are stuck online. You might have to actually find something called a book <laughs> that's not in Kindle yet because it's old. And you might actually have to hold it in your hands rather than on a digital device and read it. Those opportunities are fewer and far between, but they still do exist. Some information is still found only in libraries. So don't despise the media of past ages. There are good resources for just about any question. And to those who would do the opposite, hear some new discovery and think that it somehow confirms Scripture, be careful there, too. Christians have embarrassed themselves jumping on bandwagons of apparent discoveries that would have been really cool if they had been true, but they turned out not to be. James chapter 1 talks about not being blown and tossed about by each new wind of <laughs> doctrine. We might apply that to each new wind of information that supposedly supports or calls into question scripture. There's plenty that has been solidly and thoroughly documented. Base your convictions on that. Watch what new discoveries may emerge with interest, but don't jump on any bandwagon all that fast. Good advice. Where can we find more about you again? You mentioned the Denver Seminary page. Are there any other right. places? There will be a link to uh, faculty, and any of us can be contacted at firstname.lastname at denverseminary.edu. So that would make me Craig.blomberg at denverseminary.edu. Wonderful. And any last words you'd like to share with the audience this morning? that I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job, and I'm delighted to hear about the recent programs that you've been having. And if people are looking for a trustworthy media source in this crazy world of such diverse quality, that they should listen to you every chance they can. <laughs> that's, that's very yeah. kind of you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Blomberg, for being on the show this morning. Yes, thank thank you. you for having me. I'm so thankful for your work. I'm so glad you're not a math teacher 
doing that <laughs> <somewhere>. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm sure and more sure every time I talk to you that you made the right career choice with yeah. your field. <laughs> yes. Thank you for your passion and your service to the Lord through these well, writings. Well, thank it's you awesome. for uh, helping Nate with this show. I'd love to hear more about what you do. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Blomberg. I'll be in touch soon. Keep up the good work. Thank you so See you. much. Have Bye-bye. a great day. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed all that Dr. Blomberg had to say, and I hope that you're as convinced as ever that you can trust in Jesus Christ. If you're there and you're ready to put your faith and trust in him, I would ask you right now to say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me and for rising again to give me new life. I ask you to forgive my sins. I pray that you'd come into my life as my Savior and Lord and that you'd make me the kind of person that you want me to be. The Bible says that if you take that step this morning, you'll be adopted into his family, that he'll guarantee you a life with him on this planet and an eternity with him forever. I hope you take that step this morning. Well, please visit GodSolutionShow.com to hear this interview and last week's interview and check out all of our previous interviews while you're there. Also, let us know what you think about this show by leaving a comment. Check out the list of local churches while you're there and find a church that you might want to visit this morning and give them a try. Well, thank you so much for listening. And like I always say on this show, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon.